Before we start the program, I want to introduce you to an event that's coming up this August. The Loma Linda Institute of Worship is offering a worship leadership certificate to help leaders and pastors take their congregation's worship experience to the next level. This August 9-12 through 12 event will include presenters Randy Roberts, Adriana Pereira, Nicholas Zork, Wayne Buckner, Richard Hickam, and more, and provide the opportunity to perform on stage with Steve Green and the Heritage Singers. Come sing, pray, write new music, share testimonies and resources, and grow together with like-minded worship leaders from across the world. Go to LLIW.net to register. The eminent English New Testament scholar N.T. Wright tells the story of a woman named Barbel Eckhart. Barbel Eckhart lived during the time the Berlin Wall was up dividing East from West Germany. She was a key figure, an instrumental figure in what became known as the Berlin Fellowship. The Berlin Fellowship was a group of Christians who banded together to try to keep open a pipeline of information between the West, primarily America, and those Christians who felt cut off and isolated behind the wall. She was key to what happened. It was interesting then, some years after the Berlin Wall fell, when she was given an insight into what the secret police had known about her. It turned out they had been doing surveillance, significant surveillance on Eckhart. In fact, she was given what amounted to hundreds of pages that she could look through and ascertain exactly what had been happening behind the scenes and what had been known. Imagine how chilling it was for her to begin to look through this paperwork and realize that there was a page for almost virtually every prayer meeting she attended. How chilling it must have been to wonder who exactly was doing the surveillance. Who was it? in our group that was communicating the information. Ronald Kernighan writes about what she went through, writes about the information she was given with these words. Near the front of a three feet thick report was a report on a meeting with a group of pastors in East Berlin that had eventually led to the formation of the Berlin Fellowship. It took place about eight years after the Berlin Wall had been erected when the full weight of their isolation from other members of the Christian family pressed in upon them. The meeting was led by Ralph Hamburger, a Presbyterian minister who had grown up in a Jewish family in Hamburg, Germany. He encouraged them to believe that God could create a channel of encouragement, hope, and reconciliation between them and Christians in America. Twenty years into their experience of communism, that was not easy for them to believe. Ralph spoke in German, of course, and answered many of their questions with the very same assurance. He said, don't worry, der Herr will take care of that. In German, der Herr means both the Lord and gentleman or even sir. It is as common as the English word mister. In the margin of the type report on the first meeting was a handwritten note written by one of those doing the surveillance that said, Despite a great deal of effort and months of intensive investigations, we still do not know who Der Herr is or where he lives. (laughs) 
We don't know who that is. Don't know where he's from. Curiously, in today's passage, the people knew who their hair was and where he was from. And in fact, it was that knowledge that got them into trouble. Jesus is about to come home to Nazareth where he has grown up. We can imagine that, as would be true in any backwater town, the word must have been exciting to the citizens of Nazareth. You hear that Jesus is coming? Yeah, I sure did. I'm going to be there. Here he's going to be at the synagogue on Sabbath. I want to hear what he has to say. What he has to say. What is he going to say? He's a carpenter. He did our kitchen, did a great job. But he has no education. There's no formal theological understanding that has developed within him. What will he say? I don't know, but I'm going to be there to find out. You can imagine a small backwater town. When something happens, when a guest comes to town, everybody comes. In a setting like that, nobody misses out. So we can imagine in our mind's eye that the synagogue on that Sabbath was packed with people. It's what happens there that draws our interest today. The incident is told in Mark's Gospel, the sixth chapter. Mark chapter 6. I want to begin by reading in verse 1. Jesus left there and went to his hometown accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. I spent some time trying to sort through the sense of that word amazed. Many who heard him were amazed. From one scholarly resource, I'd like to give you the sense of that word in the original. Here's what the sense is. It's to be or become astounded to such a degree as to nearly lose one's mental composure. Wow. These people were amazed, blown away, astounded, astonished. Do you hear what he's saying? Unbelievable. I never expected that. Do you understand the implications of that? This is incredible. It's an amazing sermon. Kind of makes you want to know what he said that day, doesn't it? I'll tell you, it makes a preacher want to know what he said that day. Not only do they not fall asleep, they're sitting there slack-jawed, overwhelmed, about to lose their minds over what he's saying. So what did he say? Well, Mark doesn't tell us, not here anyway. But if we follow the trajectory of Mark's gospel, the main teaching component before this, just a chapter and a half before, was focused on teaching about the kingdom of God. He taught them with parables, telling them that the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. This tiny little seed, imperceptible. You don't even know its presence. But then it grows and becomes the greatest of all the plants. He tells them parables like that 
in Mark 4. It's safe to assume that Jesus is continuing in that same line of teaching because he's teaching his most favorite theme, the kingdom of God. In fact, if we look at Luke's gospel, when Jesus comes home to the Nazareth synagogue in Luke 4, he takes the scroll and reads from the prophet Isaiah a promise that was understood to be messianic in nature. And when he had finished reading it, he sat down to teach, looked at all those in the synagogue and said, Today, this is fulfilled in your hearing in this synagogue. No wonder the people were stunned. Apparently what Jesus was saying was the kingdom of God has arrived imperceptibly, but it will grow and grow until it becomes a powerful force which meant to the listeners in the synagogue, oh my goodness, we expected it to come with outward show, but if it doesn't come that way, that means it could be among us right now. It could be starting today. Jesus could be initiating the kingdom. No wonder, Mark says, they were so amazed. It was that they were about to lose their mental composure. Now, we know what follows from that, don't we? News like that, we know what follows from that. You celebrate. Everybody in the synagogue stands up and cheers and shouts and worships God. The kingdom has come. The next day, the headlines on the Nazareth Times flash the story. Hometown boy makes it big. Coronation set for tomorrow. Finally, we'll be able to shed that image of a backwater town. We won't hear any more of the snide jokes. Can anything good come out of that town? It's all over. Because the kingdom of God begins today. Jesus has come to town. We're ready to celebrate and praise God. That's what happens next. Right? We all know that should happen next. Except that's not what the text says. The text says they begin to ask him questions. Sarcastic, snide questions. Back to Mark chapter 6, beginning partway through verse 2, where the six questions that they ask appear. Where did this man get these things, they asked. In other words, certainly couldn't have come from him. He doesn't know anything. What's this wisdom that has been given him? Wisdom like that has to come from somewhere, has to come from above. This is Jesus. Live down the street. What are these remarkable miracles he is performing? We've heard what he's doing all around the countryside. What is that supposed to mean, these miracles? Isn't this the carpenter? We know who he is. Made our kitchen table, did a mighty fine job too, but to make these kinds of claims? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? That's Mary's boy up there. 
That's very disrespectful, by the way. Men in that day and time were not known as sons of their mother, but sons of their father. So when they say, that's Mary's boy, it's wink, wink, nod, nod, nudge, nudge. Nobody was really sure who his father was. Remember that. That's Mary's boy. Aren't his sisters here with us? They live just down the block. Ordinary family. And they took offense at him. Make no mistake about it. All of these questions, they can be boiled down to one question. One question they were asking. And that question was, who does he think he is? Seriously now, who does he think he is? To come in here talking about the kingdom of God in its beginning, who does he think he is? The venerable old Scottish scholar William Barclay puts it this way. The point is that the people of Nazareth despised Jesus because he was a working man. He was a man of the people, a layman, an ordinary man, and therefore they despised him. To us, that is his glory because it means that God, when he came to earth, claimed no exemptions. He took upon himself the common life with all its common tasks. We must always beware of the temptation to evaluate one another by externals and incidentals and not by native worth. But the people of Nazareth despised him because they knew his family. They knew, dear her, they knew who he was, and they knew where he was from. Who do you think you are? And the text says they took offense at him. It's an interesting word in the original, offense. In the Greek, it is pronounced this way, skandalizo. They were scandalized because of him, can also be translated to say they were disturbed and put off, offended by him, by the claims that he was making. So they went from slack-jawed astonishment to steely-jawed cynicism. Who do you think you are? How does Jesus respond? What does Jesus say? Verse 4, Jesus said to them, Only in their own towns, among their relatives, and in their own homes are prophets without honor. He could not do any miracles there except lay his hand on a few sick people and heal them. A prophet is without honor in his own country is what Jesus was saying, echoing a theme from the Old Testament. If we were to say that in our vernacular today, we would say familiarity breeds contempt. We know Dare here. We know who he is. We know where he's from. He's just a man of the people, a working man like all of the rest of us. Who do you think you are? I wish I could speak from our vantage point today. I wish I could speak 
to the citizens of Nazareth. Maybe you'd like to speak to them too, say something to them as well. I know what I'd like to say to the citizens of Nazareth. I'd like to say, friends, citizens of Nazareth, Jesus is just like you. He is. When he works a hard day in construction and gets home at night, he is famished and bone-weary. When he hits his finger with the hammer, he, like some of you, yelps in pain. When he walks across the desert and experiences the heat of the sun beating down upon him, his throat becomes parched, his lips crack, he says, I'm thirsty. When he spends an entire day in the sun, he comes home with skin that is wind-whipped and sunburned. Yes, he is just like you. But there's something about Jesus. There's more than meets the eye with Jesus. Because he's more than you. When you look at those cracked and calloused hands from work, understand that they not only fashioned that table in your kitchen, they also fashioned the original man out of the dust of the ground. When you see that smile that creases his face at the sight of the young ones coming to him, understand it's the same face that will beam on those who one day will come home to whom he will say, Welcome home, children. This is the place I've prepared for you. When you see him speak peace to a conflict situation, understand that's the same voice that spoke into existence the realms of illimitable space. When you sense his heart, for the brokenhearted and the downtrodden, understand that's the same heart who craves the moment when he will put back together broken lives in the perfection of eternity. He is just like you. But there's more to Jesus than meets the eye. One of my favorite ways of capturing that came in listening to the preaching of an old black preacher as he told the story of Jesus as a child in the temple, temple grounds, 12 years old. Mom and dad gone, had forgotten him, didn't know he was lost. They come back desperate to find him. They find him seated there among the erudite scholars. We're peppering him with questions who stand back themselves amazed at the wisdom that comes from the lips of this, this, this boy. Causing, said the preacher, one of those scholars to peer down at him and say to him, just how old are you, young man? To which Jesus looked up and said, well... I'm 12 years old on my mother's side. But on my father's side, I'm older than time. 
citizens of Nazareth, Jesus is just like you. But there's more to Jesus than meets the eye. He is so much more than you. And yet they continue. They're probing, penetrating, sarcastic questions. Just who do you think you are? And so Mark says, Mark records, he says, Jesus was unable to do any miracles there because of their unbelief. Well, except to lay his hands on a few sick folk and heal them. Unable. Understand that Jesus did not perform miracles to satisfy the curiosity seekers. He refused to perform his mighty acts to prove those who demanded signs. Jesus did what he did in response to faith, at times feeble, faltering faith. I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. He did it as a response to faith to give those people who followed him an example, an illustration of what it is that happens when the kingdom of God arrives in its power. He heals a person and essentially is saying, this is what happens when the kingdom of God comes. So to those snide, cynical, sarcastic people in the synagogue who in essence are wanting some proof of who he is, He has nothing to offer. Well, except for a few sick folk. The New Testament scholars Walter Wessels and Mark Strauss make an arresting observation. They write, of course there is a delightful irony, as France puts it, in the added clause, except to lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. For most people, a few healings could hardly be called doing no miracles. The point is that even under the restraints of unbelief, the kingdom of God keeps squeezing through. The tiny mustard seed grows on through the night. The tragedy for the townspeople of Nazareth was that Jesus could have done so much more if they had only believed. Couldn't do anything. Well, except lay his hands on a few sick folk. Heal them. And that's quite a phrase. Just allow your imagination to play over the words in that phrase. What if? What if? What if Jesus walked the hallways of Loma Linda University Medical Center today? And what if in the medical center he encountered the same antipathy that he encountered in the Nazareth synagogue? Just who do you think you are? And what if it had to be written of us at LLUMC Jesus could do no mighty works there because of their unbelief. And what if there were appended to that, that little phrase, 
except to lay his hands on a few sick folk and heal them. That girl on the fifth floor, leukemia, devastating diagnosis. We see her dashing out the front doors of the medical center. Mom, Dad, I'm healed. That boy waiting for surgery, teenager, osteosarcoma, they've told him, going to remove the leg. But before the date arrives, laid his hands on a few sick folk and healed them. He's dancing, running, jumping down the mall, healthy and whole. That woman whose young mother, arms hang limp at her sides as ALS makes its devastating incursions. We're stunned when she strides into church down to the front row, raises her hands in praise and celebration to God. What if? Just three or four. That's all. You couldn't do any mighty works there except in three or four lives. What if that's your daughter, your brother, your mother? You suppose you might be saying the kingdom of God has arrived so that the people in that synagogue have not only the words but the lives and yet respond with no faith. I suppose, I suppose it's because of that that Mark writes his postscript. Just one line. In verse 6, Mark 6, verse 6, he was, that's Jesus, he was amazed at their lack of faith. Amazed. The people amazed in verse 2, Jesus amazed in verse 6. But the two words are different in the original. The people's amazement was a stunned shock so as to almost lose their mental composure. This amazement is an amazement that comes when watching something happen and be startled, shocked by it, amazed that something like that would occur. Only two places in the Gospels. We spoke of this last week. Only two places in the Gospels do the writers tell us that Jesus was amazed. Many places they tell us the people were amazed. Only two places do they tell us Jesus was amazed. This is the second. Amazed. You can almost hear what he's thinking. What is it? With these people, my people, my fellow townspeople, what is it with them? 
With the teaching, they can be shocked so as to lose their mental composure, and yet they choose the way of cynicism and doubt. And he's amazed. Last week, a Gentile, the Roman centurion, a mature faith in Jesus. Jesus was amazed. This week, his own people, the ones who knew him, no faith. And Jesus was amazed. I've been living with these passages now for days, weeks. And the honest truth, the more I have lived with them, the more disturbed they have made me. To think of that. Jesus amazed at two things. Amazed when he discovers that the outsider is really an insider. And amazed when he discovers that an insider is really an outsider. And it has nothing to do with heritage, education, which church book contains your name, whether we clean up well to come to church. Nothing to do with that. It has to do with whether or not we put our faith in Jesus. The real Jesus. Because sometimes outsiders are insiders, and insiders are outsiders. And it makes me wonder. It makes me wonder. What about you? Are you an insider or an outsider? And what will you do about it? Gracious God, we thank you for Jesus, the Jesus who is just like us, but the Jesus who is far more than us, whose goings forth have been from old, from everlasting. We thank you for the Jesus who reaches all the way down to where we are and takes us all the way up to where you are. Thank you. We believe. Help our unbelief. In his name, amen.